Let's hear from the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father, this morning we ask that what we know not, that you would teach us. And what we have not, we pray that you would give us. And what we are not, we pray that you would make us by your Spirit's work. We ask and pray these things through Christ Jesus and by his name. Amen. Well, like what Doug had read earlier, if you have a copy of the Bible, I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Matthew in chapter 3, where our sermon this morning will come from verses 1 through 12. And as you're doing so, I wonder what you think of when you hear about a royal procession. You know, a, a king is arriving to a city. What, what kind of things do you have in your mind with a royal procession? Maybe you think of great music or banners waving back and forth of his importance. Maybe flowers being thrown in the streets or performers or magicians going out in front of them or costumes or in our case, maybe there would be Air Force jets flying over showing what we all know what a royal procession would have. It's showcasing the importance and prestige of that person who is coming through that caravan. I think it's interesting that in our Bible, the Bible assumes that you have a grand vision in mind when you think of a royal procession procession. Now you'd think after chapters 1 and 2 of Matthew that when Jesus is to arrive on a scene, he should, and you would imagine that, that he would show up much like how you and I would imagine a royal procession. All of those things that, that we would even do for a governor or a president or a king or a queen, that he would have some semblance of that. But the first arrival of Jesus is an arrival that is announced by someone peculiar and maybe in our minds. It's an announcement that's preached where the arrival of Jesus is being heralded by John the Baptist, a prophet from the wilderness, someone who no one really would imagine as being the forerunner or the announcer of Christ Jesus, the very king of the world. That'll take time for us to get used to too. But it's a good noise. 
I don't remember where I am. All right, so chapter three, <laughs> chapter three takes us to the awareness of the announcement of John the Baptist, where we are shown the time frame of who he is, not in particular in our gospel, but in another gospel in Luke chapter 3, where it talks about John's lineage and where he would come from and even what he would do. Other, other gospels would tell us not only that he arrived, but also he was being talked about since even he was placed in his mother's womb. Everything about John the Baptist was amazing. So we might think that, well, he's not that amazing because he's coming to the forefront in just a very ordinary way. But in in reality, everything about his life was amazing. He was Jesus's own cousin. He was born of a mother who was barren, meaning that she was so old that everyone thought it's impossible for her to have a child, yet she had John the Baptist. John was filled with the Spirit of God, even in his mother's womb. So when his mom and his mom's sister, so Jesus' cousin, when they were walking around, you can imagine two little friends in the womb, when he, became, when he came in the mere presence of Jesus, our testimony in Scripture says that he started kicking and moving around. Just being in the very presence of the Messiah caused him to stir up. And also he was described as the forerunner of Christ. But he very suddenly appeared in our text. He came in verse 1 from the wilderness of Judea. Now this is the opposite of what the world standards would be, where an announcer or a herald of a king would be someone who looks, at least in part, as rich as the very king. If the king stayed in a five-star hotel, you can imagine his herald would also stay in a five-star hotel. But God's plan was different, not only in showcasing his son to his people, but also in his plan for the herald to come. This is symbolic for us of John's own words, calling people from internal corruption and self-righteousness and ritualism, worldliness, and self-reliance. John was calling them from the riches of the city into the wilderness, almost to the point where all of us would like to go, like a peaceful place where we can really think about what our life is and what we're supposed to be doing with the life that God has given us. All of these worldly type people are being drawn to the wilderness to where they can be confronted by the man from the wilderness. His appearance was, in our text in verse 4, was he was one who was wearing camel's hair. He had a leather belt. Camel's hair wouldn't be comfortable. The leather's belt would have made him long-lasting, and he ate things like locusts and wild honey. He was stripped from all the pleasures of the world. You and I might see this trying to be done on a TV show for like 30 minutes, but none of us would ever want to have a lifestyle of this. But he was also a preacher, not just according to the world, a madman from the wilderness. It says in verse 1 that John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Now, the Greek word here means that he was a herald. He was an announcer. He was constantly proclaiming, actively declaring a certain message. He was a mouthpiece of God. That's what prophets were. Now, Matthew also uses this same Greek word in not only describing John the Baptist, but he would also use this word to describe what Jesus would do. He would preach to people. Or what the apostles would follow Jesus in doing, they would proclaim, they would herald the coming or the arrival or the second coming of Christ. When we think of announcers in the Bible, we think of prophets of the Old Testament who talked about how the Messiah was going to come. 
And then we also see how the very person of Jesus was declaring or proclaiming or preaching, I'm here. And then afterwards, the apostles would declare back towards the audience that he came and he's coming again. This message, this word that was going out was the announcement of the arrival of the kingdom and the king. At first, he was preaching to a few people, but soon gathered masses and masses of people, even to the point where the Sadducees and Pharisees had to check this out. So he was a preacher. He was also a baptizer. That's why he was called John the Baptist. It's not that he was a member of First Baptist Church Judea, but that he was an active baptizer. He baptized people as an outward sign of their inner repentance. That's what a baptism is. It's a showcase to the world of what God has done inside your heart. That's why when people come and declare Jesus as their Lord and believe in him with their heart, that their next action would be, I want to show the world that because of Christ's work, I'm dead to my sins and made alive to Christ. That's why we use a lot of water, not just a little bit because we want this picture to be so grand. He called people to repentance in light of God's coming judgment. Now, John's mission and task was focused. So remember that for 400 years, the prophets had been silence, had had been silent in the world. They had been waiting for Elijah to return to their midst. If you have a Bible, turn back very quickly to the book of Malachi. Malachi is just one book back, so just a couple of pages. One book back, a couple of pages. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 through 6. This is what people have been waiting for for 400 years. So it's startling that all of a sudden John the Baptist shows up on the stage, not just because of what he wore or what he was saying, but that he was doing something that should have caught their attention. It says in verse 4, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of our Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The supreme example of the Old Testament prophet of God was being spoken of in the person of Elijah. He boldly rebuked kings. He preached boldly the gospel of repentance, and he validated his messages with amazing signs and miracles. And so people were awaiting Elijah in the flesh, yet here was John doing something that seemingly only Elijah could do. Even though John was not the literal resurrected Elijah, he was the Elijah the prophet Malachi predicted would come. We see this in Luke chapter 1. So turn over Again, to Luke chapter 1. Now, I know that we're flipping back and forth. I actually got Bible tabs this week because I don't know where a lot of the books are off the top of my head. So you can do it too. It's like four bucks on Amazon. It makes things a lot easier. So turn to Luke chapter 1 just so that we have our eyes in the text. And it's not just me saying things, but it's the word of God being presented to us that in Luke chapter 1, verse 17, it says, or go back to 16, it says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Sound familiar? And he will go before him. This is the angel of the Lord speaking about what John the Baptist would be. He will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. 
John shows up in spectacular form. He is the very embodiment of what Elijah was promised to be. We see in John chapter 1 also this amazing characteristic of who, the, or who John the Baptist was. So in the book of John, turn over just one more, we see in verse 19, this is not John the Baptist's book, but the apostles, John's book. We see in verse 19 where it says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem, they asked him, who are you? So John was creating such a stir that people were wanting to know, who is this man from the wilderness? They asked him, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. They asked if he was the actual Messiah that we've been waiting for for 400 years. He said, I'm not the Christ. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, no, I'm not Elijah. It's clearly John the Baptist. What, they said, who are you? We need to give an answer toward those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So John is shown to us in our passage and in other passages of what was being talked about long ago and also what would be talked about in different gospels. John is showing himself and is being shown to us by Matthew as fulfilling the Old Testament prophecy in becoming the forerunner to the Messiah. It says in our own passage this morning in verse 3, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. This Isaiah text gives a comforting promise of hope for the brokenhearted people of God. If you were to turn back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 40, verses 3 through 5, you would see this play out where God is giving a great hope to his people. God promises strength for endurance to all who will wait on him. And a promise of glorious hope breaks upon the very people of God. And John the Baptist uses these words to announce the coming of the Lord in the person of Christ. So what we see when we're zooming in on John, Matthew shows the reader that John the Baptist is the forerunning herald announcing the kingdom. The kingdom and the Messiah won't show up unless there's someone announcing who he is. We were given a testimony in Malachi of what would happen for that to take place. We were given the promise of what would happen in Isaiah, and we see the embodiment of Elijah or the person of Isaiah actually doing this work. So we should know that Jesus won't be far from him. And the people were reacting tremendously to this. The Messiah and the kingdom are coming. And this announcement was causing people to repent for the day of judgment was also coming with the king and the kingdom. Now, the narrative of this passage is actually pretty simple, pretty basic. It, it doesn't change scenes very often. This was occurring about 30 years or about 28 years after chapter 2. So all of the particulars and all the tension that happens in chapters 1 and 2, we now zoom forward about 28 years later where John is preaching for people to repent, but not just in general, but for a particular reason. He's telling them to repent because, because judgment is coming, because the king and his kingdom are at hand. Verse 4 and 5 describe the effects of God bringing people to himself through John's people. People were coming from all over, hearing his message, and then responding by faith in being baptized. But the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came up. You can imagine them almost coming over the horizon, 
looking out, and John here looks up at them, and he lashes out. Look at verse 7. It says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. He's saying that these Pharisees and Sadducees were relying on their Jewish lineage to save them. They weren't coming out of repentance. They were coming and recognizing that we don't have to respond to John's message here because I'm related to so-and-so, and and I'm related to so-and-so, and because of who my family is, that's a message for other people. And what John is saying to the world is that you must repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In faith, man responds in repentance. In recognizing sin and the Messiah, man responds in repentance. And the result of true repentance, John says here, is righteous living. What a repentant person looks like is one who bears fruit or produces fruit. We recognize this normally because a rotten tree will produce nothing good, only things that are rotten. But a renewed tree or a regenerated tree or a tree that has been rebirthed according to our scriptures, that is one that produces fruit. And what John is doing is he's looking at these people and he's saying, you haven't repented of your sins. You're not believing in the Messiah to save you. You're believing in your birth certificate. The righteous redeemed are believing in the Messiah and repenting of their sins, but the Pharisees and Sadducees were not. John demands proof of new life from these men before he would baptize them. And he goes on in verse 9 to to show even a a confrontational rebuke by saying, I know that you're going to say you're fine because you're from Abraham. They think that they're pretty special because of who they're related to. But he goes on to say that God could make rocks to be the children of Abraham if he wanted to. Basically looking right at them and saying, I know that you're going to say you're related to Abraham, but big whoop. The things on the ground could be related to Abraham if that's what God wanted to do. And you too need to repent. John's rebuke goes to a vibrant visual in verse 10 where he shows, you can imagine a tree is standing there representing these people's lives and he's saying the axe is hanging at the root, waiting to chop. And the rest of your life is in front of you. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew's narrative ends with John expressing deep humility towards Jesus. The one who he was a forerunner to, the one who would come after him, Jesus, was more powerful than John, which in our case, it it probably means that Jesus is really powerful because of look at what John is doing for the world to see. John's work was the public expression of repentance, but his baptism actually couldn't change the heart. The baptism was in response to what the heart had been changed by. Jesus' baptizing the repentant would, would be with the Holy Spirit. That work makes man holy through the inner transformation. What John was visibly showing was going to be something that only Jesus could do in man's heart. Now, this too is like an echo John is saying to us. We, we imagine if we, if we are good Bible students and if we are doing all of our memory verses and if we go to Awana every week, we should have in our minds Ezekiel 36 that's talking about the new covenant where the Lord says that I will place my spirit in you because your heart needs to be made new. 
Jesus would also baptize people, not just with the Holy Spirit, but also with fire, a reference to divine judgment against unrepentant sinners and a reference towards the purification that comes toward God's own. Matthew shows us here that the entrance of the kingdom and king arrives with a word, not a play, not a fancy dinner, Not an amazing parade or an elegant gesture. Nothing physical was being prepared. You know, in that day when a king would arrive, there would be forerunners who would go out before him and they would make sure all the roads are good. They would make sure any restaurant that he's going to stop in, all the signs work and everyone looks appropriate and everyone knows what he wants to order and all the things are there, but there was nothing physical going on here. But a word from the wilderness that was, was being spoken to the earth. So, if you're using an outline, I'm now on point one. (laughs) I think there are five things that John spoke clearly of and plainly of in this passage. This passage, I think, is talking about not just John the Baptist, not just him being the forerunner of Christ, not just him being having particulars that are echoing things from the Old Testament, but I think what this text is actually raising to the top is that there is a word going out from this prophet. And we all need to know what it is. So first, I think he spoke plainly about sin. John taught the absolute necessity of repentance. You repent because you are sinful. Now, the Westminster Confession in the Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is sin? And thankfully, it answers it because sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. A sin is any want of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. When you sin, it's not just that you are doing something wrong or doing something bad, but that you are against God. And so what repentance is, what the word means is turn or return. Not to be sorry, not to be startled, not to be jolted, but actually to halt and turn around from the pathway that you've been going. It specifically means, repentance specifically means to change one's purpose. J.I. Packer, the living theologian, says that man naturally by instinct walks at a distance from God. Man naturally walks at a distance from God, and what God calls is for man to stop, turn around, and walk towards him. That's what repentance is, walking towards Jesus because of his word is calling you to halt and turn around. Now, some of you have served in the military, and part of serving in the military is you learn how to obey orders, right? So imagine going the wrong direction, and your commander or whoever is over you tells you to halt and about face and go the other direction. I don't know all the marching orders, sorry. I only went to Boy State once, so I, I can't remember what all happened then. But if you in your right mind hear those orders from your commanding officer to stop, turn around, and go the other direction, is your response repentance when you go, oh, I guess I'm going the wrong direction. I don't know. Or is repentance looking like you feeling bad for going in the wrong direction? Or is repentance you blame shifting and going, well, someone else told us to go this direction and that's where the food hall is, so I'm going to go there anyway. No, repentance actually looks like you stopping, turning around and going towards Christ. What John's message is, is plain about sin. He is telling people to repent. 
Now, what he's telling them is something that you and I need to heed or hear today. The good news of Jesus is just news if it's without repentance. The good news says that you and I are naturally dead. We are naturally blind. We are asleep. Or like J.I. Packer's example is we are walking at a distance from God. And it says that we naturally look to the world or at ourselves for pleasure or answers. I gave you a quote a couple weeks ago from Al Mohler where it says, we often see the problem as out there and the solution as in here, but we need to recognize that the problem in our lives is actually in here. Remember going through marriage counseling before we got married and they say, you are going to think that you're the best solution for your marriage problems. But guess what? You are the problem for your marriage problems. All man needs to recognize is that the problem isn't here and we need an alien solution. That's what John is talking about when he says repent. Like the Pharisees, we often make religion a pathway, a personal peace, ignoring our broken heart altogether. We think that we're fine. We just want to do good things. If we just keep doing good things, then we're going to be all right. But we need to change our understanding of what sin is. We need to change our direction of where we need to go, and we need to focus on a new destination of where we need to arrive. Now, in thinking through this passage, I just think that the the idea and the topic of biblical repentance is so big that I'm going to preach on it again next week. So I had planned to go through the next passage next week, but what I'm going to do is try to zoom in on a biblical understanding and a doctrinal understanding of what repentance is next week. But in our passage... We are not left without understanding. John tells us that we need to repent and turn from our sin and believe in Jesus, the coming kingdom and Messiah of our souls. So first, he spoke plainly about sin. Second, he spoke plainly about Jesus. In verse 11, John said that the one who would come would be mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. John was saying that he was nothing more than a servant. Now, one of the roles that a household slave would have in that time, one of the things that they would be called to do is actually take off the shoes of their master. And what John is saying is, I'm not even able to take off the man's shoes. He's so glorious and I'm so unworthy. The coming one was the king. And John is saying, I'm the least of the servants. John's role was to baptize with water those who would turn from their sins and entrust their souls to the Messiah. Think about that. John's John's work was to baptize with water and point people to, and remind people of the one who had actually saved their souls. He's saying, trust in the one who is coming to save you. He spoke plainly, though, about the coming one, Jesus, who had the power and the desire to baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire, those who would call out to him as Savior. Jesus is the one who John spoke plainly of, who would wipe away all of man's sins and would one day judge the world. John, in this short passage, is announcing plainly to us a great picture of the Messiah. John's plain plain words about Jesus is exactly now what you and I need to focus on all of our lives. We need to be sent directly towards Christ. We need to be told again and again, Or we need to tell ourselves again and again of his kingdom, what that means for us, of his kingship, what his messiahship and his lordship means for us, and also what his judgment means for us and for the world. We often stop just short of this, though. Think of where you and I normally place our heart's rest. 
Think of what makes a good day to you a good day. It's easy to think of what makes a day an anxious day or a nerve-wracking day or a hard week or a hard season, but what makes a resting day for us? Maybe it's your involvement in the church rather than focusing on the Messiah himself. Maybe it's you thinking so much about your family that they become an idol to you rather than focusing you and your family on the one who will come. Maybe it's involvement of the fruit of your labor. You recognize all these things are good. Like, I hope you're involved in the work of the church. I hope you're involved in your family. I hope you're involved in the labor of your hands. But imagine and realize how easy it is for those to become our focus rather than the Messiah himself. Or maybe our gifts towards the church or other good ministries. We can imagine that if we can do enough to satisfy our hearts, we can still fall short if we are not aiming at the one. Remember that the object of our faith is the one who we should be focusing on, not just the practice of our faith. John speaks plainly to us about the absolute necessity of a union with Christ himself by faith. Jesus is the appointed fountain of mercy, grace, life, and peace. Look at him, he says. His arrival makes necessary our personal dealings with him about our souls. So those who heard John's preaching reconciled their lives with the reality of impending judgment. They heard what he said about Jesus and about his coming, and they repented of their sins, and they were right to do so. They saw the coming work of Christ in the last days. We see this in chapter 12, where it talks about his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his weed into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And the Lord revealed to them their wandering lives, and in his grace he summoned them to himself. You recognize that that's what Jesus does when he calls people to himself. He reveals to you who you are, and then he tells you about face. And he summons you, he draws you, he brings you, he snatches you towards himself. So John spoke plainly about the person of Jesus and sin. But third, he spoke plainly about the Holy Spirit as well. John preached that there was such a thing as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He taught that it was the special office of the Lord Jesus to give this work towards men. The very work of Jesus is shown here by the person of the Spirit. Again, this teaching is so rich for us to know because we need its truth. We need the understanding of what the Spirit does. Charles Spurgeon, the late pastor in London, says that the true baptism of the believer by the Lord Jesus himself brings us into spiritual floods of holy fire. I'll say that again. The true baptism of the believer by the Lord Jesus brings us into spiritual floods of holy fire. What an image. Jesus is the divine Lord who covers us with the fiery guidance of the Holy Spirit. Salvation is not just the forgiveness of your sins, but God's indwelling you with his Spirit. The security that we have when the Spirit is testifying to us about the work of Jesus. There must not only be the work of Christ for us, but the work of the Spirit in us. This is what John is speaking clearly of, or as John put it, the baptizing of our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Not only do we receive a title of entrance to heaven by the blood of Christ, but also in our lives we receive a preparation of heaven employed, employed in us by the work of the Spirit. 
the Spirit in the heart of man testifies of the glorious work of Christ. People often wonder, what is the Holy Spirit doing? The Holy Spirit is pointing our hearts, pointing our affections, pointing what we should be thinking of to the very person and the work of Jesus. By this, the Spirit comforts us. He directs us. He guides us, not just abstractly, but how does the Spirit comfort you? By remembering who Jesus is and remembering His interceding ways in the heavens. How does the Spirit direct you by showing you what is right and not right? How does the Spirit guide you by telling you of the testimonies of the Lord? Friend, may we never rest till we know the real rest that's given to us by the Spirit who shows us Christ. What John is speaking clearly of is the work of the Spirit by directing us towards God's glory. The baptism of water is a great privilege, but John also speaks plainly about the securing and eternal comfort brought by the baptism of the Spirit. Fourth, another thing that John speaks clearly of, John spoke plainly about unbelief. John boldly and plainly spoke of what's been said before. The wrath of God is coming for the enemies of God. That's basically what every prophet does in the Old Testament. The wrath is coming and so is the Messiah. Look at verse 7 in the second part of verse 7 where it says there, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. The wrath to come. He preached a message likening God's wrath to an unquenchable fire in which the chaff in verse 12 would one day be thrown into. This is why it's so needed for for us today. All need to be specifically warned about the reality of God's wrath and hell. And it's no light, light matter. Believers too need to be reminded that there is a hell as well as a heaven. It's both alarming and incredibly comforting. And an everlasting punishment for the wicked as well as an everlasting life for the godly, we need to be reminded because we are good at forgetting this, or maybe we are negligent at forgetting this. Remember the words sung by the angels in Revelation. It's not God's love that's being repeated again and again. It's not God's mercy that's being repeated again and again. It's not God's justice being repeated again and again, but it's God's holiness that is being repeated, that God is holy, 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 the only thing that is repeated like that in all of the Bible. And with his holiness comes judgment on evil. How carefully John speaks and Matthew records that it is no real kindness to keep back the terrors of the Lord on the wickedness of the world. So it's good for us to see. It's good for us to be taught of what will happen to evil and unrighteousness. Isn't it sweet for you to be told what will happen to evilness? Don't we long for that when we watch the news or hear about awful things? Don't we want actual justice to roll down? And what John is saying, here he comes, the man of justice and mercy. Or to use John's image, we're shown the, we're shown the wheat that is sitting on the threshing floor, waiting to be sifted. And so fifth, another thing that we see, lastly, the final thing that we see John speaking plainly about is he spoke plainly about the safety of true believers. If one part was the negative side, this is certainly the positive side. John spoke with clarity and plainly that there is a coming winnowing fork for all who are Jesus' own. 
it's a spectacular image. We often think of it negatively about how many of us just hope that God will remember us at the last days. How many of you have that normal anxiety of you just hope that someone will remember you when they invite people to their birthday party? And how often can you imagine wandering around the desert like we do, just hoping that the Lord in all of his grace will remember us? And here is a picture of him doing just that. He gives a picture of God's own being gathered together there in the day of his appearing. The illustration that is used in verses 11 and 12 as is an illustration that in Palestine, farmers would make a threshing floor by, by creating a divot in the ground and hardening the ground all around it. And they would wet this ground and pack it down until it's a solid feature. And then they would place stalks, over, stalks of grain onto that ground and an ox would drag heavy pieces of wood over those stalks of grain to kind of mash things up and separate. And then a farmer would get a winnowing fork and actually take the wheat and throw it up in the air, and the wind would take the chaff away, and the goodness would fall down to the ground. And that's who Jesus will scoop up in the last days. You see how this is a picture of wrath and grace a picture of God's judgment, but also a picture of his securing work where he's separating what is evil from what he has deemed righteous and called to himself. After this is done, all that is left is what is desired by the king. And friend, if you have repented of your sins, that's the image of your future, being scooped up eternally by the king himself. Like all other things John spoke plainly about, we need this teaching too. The greatest saints in the world need great encouragement. The strongest Christians I've ever met need to be reminded that God will keep them because he has loved them, because he has foreknown them. They are not an accident in his grace, but they are his people. Like any of us would go to great ends to protect those whom we love. God does this too. Martin Luther, you might know him as one who was known as the bold reforming worker 500 years ago who stood against the greatest powers in all the land and says, no, this is what the Bible spoke of. Martin Luther felt attacked all the time by Satan himself, dealing greatly with spiritual depression, fighting hard against the sins that he saw in his life. I love The phrase that far too often we don't sing when we sing Martin Luther's, I think, best-known hymn. It says, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath, hath willed his truth to triumph through us. Oftentimes we sing of God's mercy because, frankly, it's easier to remember a song than a bunch of Bible verses isn't. And so when we sing of God's remembering work, that we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. It becomes a sweet reminder of the image of the threshing floor. In God's good love, he reminds his own of their safety in his arms. John speaks of the spirit that Jesus will later send who guides God's own through this life until they reach their eternal glory. Like Noah, resting in the safety of the ark. God's people fear not the winnowing work because they have entrusted through their heart toward the Son of Man, the Messiah, who came 
and brought his kingdom. So John speaks plainly about sin and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. He speaks plainly about unbelief and belief. And if you find yourself today knowing that you have not repented, if you find yourself today looking at that threshing floor and hoping that that scoop never goes up into the air because you'll, you know that by your own sin you'd be cast into fire, I just want to beg of you and tell you and encourage you, heed the words that John the Baptist said, repent, give your life over to the Lord, give your thoughts over to the Lord. Your yesterday, flee from it. Your sins, turn from them and give yourself over to Jesus this day. Receive Jesus by turning from your sins and focusing your soul on him. Accept him, friend. Believe him. He's the good Messiah who is coming and seeking and saving the lost. Friend, come, commit and surrender your life to the King of Kings. The one who was awaited for for so, so long. His death, by his death, he has made the only payment for your sins that can survive the day of judgment. So that when God sees you, he will see the work of Jesus. When you believe in Jesus to save you, you will find a willing and loving Savior who will embrace you in his arms, clothe you with his perfect righteousness, and wash away all of your sins. May these things seep deeply into your heart. Now is the time to turn to him. Lead on, O King Eternal, one hymn says. We follow not with fears. For gladness breaks like morning wherever your face appears. Your cross is lifted over us. We journey in its light. The crown awaits the conquest. Lead on, O God of might. Let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you this morning and are grateful for the testimony that John the Baptist is recorded of in your Gospel of Matthew. And so we pray that we would heed his words and understand the ramifications of what our sins are and repent of our sins. Those of us who call out to you, Savior, will we be, will we be quick to have a lifestyle of repentance knowing that we need to focus on you again and again and again? And Lord, for those who don't know you, we pray that you would stir up with them the awareness of their broken heart, their sinful soul, and your glorious Son. We pray that you would bring them to yourself, that you would summon them to yourself, that their response this morning would be like those who followed John into the wilderness, giving their lives over to you. Lord, may we be testimonies of the sweetness of what that is like. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus.